everyone, the Slowing Down podcast is back into rotation after an accidental break for the summer. I have to confess that even though I am myself, Jeanne, slow preaching for slow life, the reason I'm doing it is because I am the first person in my life who needs this reminder. During the summer, I got so excited about incoming projects that I jumped into nearly every single one of them. And if you're subscribed to my newsletter, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, I'm proud of those projects, although I got pretty overwhelmed. And when I get stressed and overwhelmed, I get stupid. Long story short, I jumped into Saint Laurent River during the hottest day of the summer. And guess what? I got bronchitis. For more than a month, I barely could speak. I was just coughing. And I had no idea how antisocial this activity is. I couldn't even go to my favorite cafe and work on my laptop. Anyway, I am super happy that it's finally passed and I can again record my voice and continue this wonderful project where I speak with you or my guests about the slowing down experiences and the notion of slow. How important it is. And before the summer break, we had recorded two more episodes, which I can't wait to share with you. All right, I'll finish my rumble here and offer you to listen to the first episode with my friend Lisa Pavlova. Lisa is a portrait photographer based in New York City and has PhD in science of psychology. Her perspective on the creativity is researched in detail. Wait for it and she's gonna tell you why exactly it's so crucially important for a creative person to slow down from the scientific proven point of view. Oh my god, I'm so excited. So without further ado, please welcome Lisa Pavlova from her closet in New York City, because both of us were recording this podcast from closets. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Jana. What's up? Uh, all good, all good. We're recording it from two closets. <laughs> two closets in two different countries. Not so far from each other, though. Yes, I'm in New York uh, in my closet. That's all I'm going to give you. <laughs> For our listeners, I'll just explain a little bit. Whenever I have a guest who is not present with me in the studio, we do the online recording. And to have the voice to be nice and clear, we do this surrounded by as many absorbing things as possible and what can be better than your own closet. So that's, as Lisa call it, like a glamorous life of a podcaster. <laughs> uh, it's kind of fun. <laughs> I actually enjoy it. You're my very, very cool, awesome friend from school, from high school, middle school. All of the schools. All of the schools, yeah. I can just only say like how it's incredible to have you as a friend and how it's amazing that throughout the years we haven't got lost. And at the same time, like we were separated during the time when you were doing PhD in psychology. This part, I don't really know. I knew you already as a photographer. So maybe if you could just briefly introduce yourself to our listeners and tell your life journey and your pathways and how you chose to be who you are today. Thank you, Jana. I just want to say that you are awesome too. And so we met when we were like 
maybe 12, 10, something in middle school. And uh, Jana was a few years older than me. And she was like the cool person that I looked up to who would, you know, go to see shows and listen to cool music and have uh, friends with long hair. I think you know who I'm talking about right now. Yep. <laughs> uh, my my 10-year-old crush. <laughs> yeah, we went to this uh, awesome school together that taught us what self-determination is, what democracy is, what our liberal values are. But unfortunately, the school didn't really teach us that it's not what's going on in the world, really, especially in Russia. Yeah. So when we left school, it was strange that, you know, they taught us everything about democracy and there was no way we could practice it in real life. We lost each other a little bit after school. I went to a university where I studied psychology and uh, received a PhD in general psychology. The topic of my PhD thesis was creativity and emotional intelligence within intellectual and personal potential of a person. Wow. Here's the idea. There is something called intellectual and personal potential of a person. It's like a big soup or salad, if you will, where all of the skills you have, all of the characteristics of your personality, of your cognitive sphere, of everything about you is mixed. Uh, this is what determines your decisions, what you do, everything. So basically, intellectual and personal potential of a person is everything that's psychology about you. And my work was about how creativity as an ability to create new ideas and emotional intelligence as an ability to understand and manage your emotions and emotions of others, how they interact within this big personal soup that is in our heads. I studied psychology, so I studied five years, got my specialty degree for people from America. It's like in between bachelor and master's. It's a special program that only post-Soviet Union countries have. It's like a five-year-old master program, basically. And then the next step is something called candidate. And this is the analog of PhD degree. And then I just wasn't happy <laughs> with doing science, especially doing science in Russia, especially doing science in Russia where my school taught me all the, all the values. At the high school, right? The high school, yeah. yes. And you studied at MSU, right? Yeah, Moscow State University. Mm -hmm. One of the best uh, universities, I think. I would say the best university, mm -hmm. especially when I went there. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it was like number 198th university in the world. And the only one that was like in the rating. Oh, dear Russia. So yeah. very proud. Very proud. Uh, and also I spent a few summers in the States, in New Haven, uh, being an intern in a psychogenetic lab. And during this time when I went to school, I was already uh, doing some photography. I started to do photography because I wanted to hang with rock stars. And I successfully did. <laughs> there are a few cool tours under my belt. I shot 
everybody, you name it, Snow Patrol, Limbiscuit. So basically you are going to the best Russian school, MSU, doing the studies, science and psychology. Yeah, I wasn't really a psychologist. I was a scientist. That's how I called myself. Yeah. And in parallel, you were also kind of badass chick with a photo camera taking photographs of rock stars. Was it at the same time or was it? Yes, yes, it was at the same time. How were you mixing it? Did I ever have to go pass an exam while still drunk from night before? I'm not going to tell you. It's I, I'll plead the fifth. <laughs> and I'm not going to tell you if it happened. Wow. I don't know. We had more energy back then, right? Totally. Yeah. Somehow we could live four lives at the same time. Yes, and not nap at all, ever. <laughs> like now I, I need to nap. I'm sorry, like did my dishes or something. <laughs> yeah. I remember once when I went on tour with Parotones who were opening for Snow Patrol at the time, I went on tour with them. But right before that, I went to a psychology conference. So I did conference. I had like a suit on and jump on the plane and went to Germany to tour with Snow Patrol. Wow. That's amazing. So how did it go further? I successfully defended my PhD. Bravo. Got a little piece of paper that says, you have a PhD. It's not even a diploma. It's just a piece of paper in, <laughs> in Russia. And then I realized that I'm tired and I don't want to do it. Because the word of academia is, I know it's tough here in the States, but in Russia it's even worse because there's less money. So people are quite competitive. And I'm, I'm not good with politics. And there is politics in academia. I worked for a little bit in areas that had to do with psychology a little bit, uh, such as I did some usability. It's kind of part of psychology. But then one day I just decided, screw it. I'm leaving. I'm leaving Russia. I'm leaving psychology. And I just packed two suitcases and moved to New York. Wow. To pursue my dream of taking pictures of people. It makes sense. Psychology and portrait photography, because both of them are studying individual people and finding what's up with them. I was doing a lot of portraiture back home, found some success there, worked for Vogue. But the next step was to go to the capital of visual arts of the world, New York City, which I loved for many years and wanted to live here. And I did. And here I am. If some of you ever emigrated all the way across the world, you know that once you're in this new place, if there is someone you know there, it's so important to stay connected to your roots through people you knew in your childhood. So whoever you know who is in the same city, the same country as you, is your best friend now. And I'm I'm very glad that we got back back in touch mm -hmm. and became friends again. Yeah. And maybe repeated some of the old patterns from a childhood, but... Yeah, we kind of looped around. Um, yeah, so I came to New York City in 2017. Yeah, so, oh my God, it's been five years now. 
I don't think it's been five years. It's been two and a half because two and a half we spent in COVID and they don't count. Okay, minus two and a half of COVID, which is still kind of here. Mm -hmm. So maybe could you please tell me more about your New York City life and how did it go with uh, becoming basically a freelance photographer full time? You know, find a job you love and you strike out will not work a day and put in like will work 24-7 and hate yourself. I always joke that my boss is an asshole and I'm my own boss, so <laughs> I'm not too kind to myself. <laughs> But it's great. I met so many amazing people. I met so many amazing creatives. And this place is so inspiring to me. I um, I really think my my heart is here and I'm so happy to live in the greatest city in the world, which I believe it is. My fiance always jokes. Sometimes I ask him, like, do you want to move to New Jersey? Do you want to move to Philadelphia? And he knows that it's a trick question and he needs to say no. <laughs> because I'm not moving anywhere. I want to stay here. And it's a beautiful feeling to to be in this art capital of the world. Also here, I uh, found... Another love, which is uh, Broadway and working with actors. Madam Broadway stole my heart. Working with actors turned to be the most amazing thing ever. And being in New York, it kind of makes things so much easier. The first actor I ever, uh, Broadway actor I ever shot was uh, Nicholas Padani. He was the lead actor of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child on Broadway. He played Albus Potter. Wait, is that the Broadway show where I invited you and I got the tickets from Natalia, who also lives uh, in New York City, and she got those tickets like for free from a colleague who just like last moment decided not to go, <laughs> so very random. Jana, you really, here's how it all, you know, you can connect the dots when you look back. You introduced me to, to this world. Wow. That's true. <laughs> Accidentally. And it was so easy because we just went to show for those of you who don't know, it used to be not anymore, but it used to be a two night performance. And after night one, I was so inspired that I just slide into those DMs of, of Nick. And I was like, I watched the show today. It's so amazing. I'm a photographer. Here's my portfolio. Let's shoot something together. And he was like, yeah, next Monday. <laughs> and being physically here is what really allowed it to happen. Mm -hmm. And you live in Manhattan, so it's uh, really walkable for like Broadway actors. Yes, I live right next to the theater district. It's a very ugly place because Times Square is right there. If you know how New York is built, uh, theater district is literally around Times Square. And if you live in New York, if you're a real New Yorker, you avoid, avoid Times Square. At any cost, except for the pandemic. Um, during the pandemic, it was the best place to be because there were no one <laughs> and it was so surreal. Exactly. <laughs> and during the pandemic, I would go for a walk there. Uh, and oh my God, this place is beautiful. <laughs> the architecture is like crazy. It's so beautiful. And there was no one except for the naked cowboy. Uh, maybe one time there was, a, I think, a Batman 
he was still there, like very sad, walking back and forth. They also needed to work. Yeah, it's true. Let's go back to uh, Broadway actors. I found that uh, working with creative people whose creativity is all about like impression and working with their own body is a very special experience for a photographer. I'm, John, don't get me wrong, I'm very good with what's called regular people. For people who listen to us, I'm, I'm doing air quotes right now, regular people. Uh, and I know how to make them feel or show things. But with actors, it's just fun. When they like cry for you in a matter of seconds and then like do stupid stuff and very open to try new things and experience new things. And it kind of goes a little bit back to my thesis because the main trait that I studied in uh, my thesis and my research group was working on is something called uh, tolerance for uncertainty. And tolerance for uncertainty is a personal trait that reflects how good you are in accepting and acting in uncertain situations. I'm sorry for that. <laughs> it's way more common than you think. When you make a decision, should I walk to work taking this street or that street, this street can be crowded, but that street is, um, I don't know, too loud because of construction, it's still an uncertain situation. Or when you decide what to buy for lunch, because you don't really have criteria of the right answer. How do you, how do you determine if your answer, if your decision was right? Mm -hmm. There is lack of this criteria. So you need to base your decision on uncertain conditions. In my research group, under the supervision of Professor Kornilov, if someone wants to Google it, we based everything on the idea of tolerance for uncertainty being the main personal trait to, that determines the decision-making process. And it's especially important for creative people and for creativity because you, when you write a poem, you how do you determine if it's good or bad or what's the goal? You're the person who sets the goals for yourself. You need to be open to new experience and open to different things, open to fail and being your own boss. As a creative person, there is no one setting the goals for you. There is no one except for you who can determine if you've reached your goals or how you will perceive the fail. So it's very important for creative people to be tolerant for uncertainty or ambiguity. Funny enough, in Russian, uncertainty and ambiguity is the same word. So we don't really know the difference between those two things. Is there a difference in English? Yes. One is kind of sort of choice from two, and another is choice from, like, whatever. Total open space. You just don't know. You just don't know. Yeah, that's uncertainty, yeah. Mm -hmm. And in my thesis, I uh, was studying uh, creative professionals, people who really have a successful creative career, writers, 
composers and theater and stage directors, as well as the students of the same professions. So students who get the degree in writing and creative writing and music and in acting. And I try to compare them to each other and see, like, how do you grow in the profession? Because obviously not everybody who studied this ends up pursuing this dream and pursuing this career. So what are the psychological qualities you need in order to succeed in creative professions? And at the same time, there was a control group of psychological students who I used to used to see what's like the baseline for just just a person, just a student. So if we take creative students, uh, take the all the students from them and compare them to uh, creative professionals, we will see this path and this difference and what helps you be uh, good in, in a creative profession. What was your theory at the beginning and if uh, like it changed at the end of the research or you just proved it? So the theory was, hey, here is creativity as your ability to solve weird creative tasks. Here is uh, your tolerance for uncertainty as a personal trait to be able to function in uncertainty and risk readiness as a part of it. Also, intuition can be part of it. And here is emotional intelligence. And they all should kind of work together for you to be successful. And let's torture hundreds of people, making them like <laughs> feel the questionnaires for hours. It was tough. <laughs> It was long. What was your sample group? It's 100 people? It's hundreds. The sample size was 734 people. Wow. From them, the creative professionals were 53 people. And with creative professionals, I had to test them individually. So with students, it's fine. You just put like 20 students in the room and be like, you have to do it. But with creative professionals, we would just sit down and do it individually for two, maybe three hours. Wow. That's a lot of work. It's a very rare approach to because there are a lot of studies of creative professionals, but mostly they are used as like experts. Let's interview about uh, what art is or what does flow feel like or things like that. And my creative professionals, they were sitting there and being like, one to five, how do you agree with this statement? And usually psychologists don't, don't make creative professionals do things like that. Yeah, so we believe that emotional intelligence, that's what I said, emotional intelligence, uh, acceptance of uncertainty and uh, creativity are connected. And the question is how? How they interact with each other? How do they, how are they connected to each other? Uh, because not everything in your, in, in your psychic, not everything is really connected. There are layers. And within the approach that my research group follows and that my advisor created, we believe that there is a layered cake of traits, both personal and intellectual. So it's not only your IQ, it's also what's your character, what's your... Anyways, there is this cake that in every and each situation, a different layer would lead 
your decision maker? Because, you know, there is this ancient question. Let's imagine we know everything about human psychology. It's not true. It's not what's going on. But let's imagine in hundreds of years, we're going to know everything about people and their psychology. And we will be able to measure every trait you can imagine if we put all of the traits in the black box, like mix them and apply like a neural network to them or something, will we be able to determine what decision this person is going to make in every situation? And the answer is no. We can do it post-factum. We can look back and be like, this person made this decision because of that. But we can never really predict it because humans' psychology changes all the time. And different layers of the layer cake would lead and be on top and would determine the, the decision. That's the theory that we believe in. When I say we, I mean, you know, editorial we, I, but also people in my research group, because you're supposed to say we. And we wanted to see how it works with creative professionals, uh, what traits lead, how traits connect to each other. Let's not discuss the fact that also it changes every time because you're not equal to yourself. And every minute you grow, you change your psychology changes. You can never enter the same river twice. It's a very big part of this approach, but this is very hard to measure. So let's just see when we put people in front of different tasks, especially the tasks that help us measure creativity, what other traits uh, connect to it and leads to them being able to successfully solve them or not. Because when we measure creativity, we literally put people in a room and be like, how about you write a short story right now? That's actually one of the tests we've really used. Write a, a short story in 10 minutes uh, based on one of the weird titles. And another test was we gave people little cartoons and ask them to come up with titles for the cartoons, like New Yorker style. Both of the tests were uh, developed by uh, Sandberg and colleagues. And when you do it, this is not a trait you're measuring because this is something that happened here and there. So we can be sure that other traits we measure that like your characteristic that doesn't really change or changes very slowly through your life was what was before they wrote the story. And this is what determined uh, how, how good they were in writing the story. And an interesting thing that we didn't expect, but we found that's like my favorite uh, outcome of this study. And it ties it all back to slowing down podcast for all of you people who like, why am I listening to this? Here's why. So what we found, we always believed that uh, you need to be accepting of uncertainty, be ready to risk, be ready to uncertainty, trust your intuition in order to be successful in solving creative tasks. But what we found, uh, studying two tests I just mentioned before, that people who are very accepting of risk, accepting of uncertainty, they're actually not very good in creating titles for cartoons, for little stories. 
they good in writing a 10 minute short story, but they not good in creating titles. And why is that? And my theory that I defended as a part of my thesis was that you can be too accepting of uncertainty. If you're too ready to take risks, you're gonna take the first answer you see, and the first answer is always not the most creative answer. So the first answer, the first theory you have is always the least creative one, least original one. Uh, When you hear the, you think it's a horse, right? Like you just heard it, you thought it was a horse. Why don't you think it's a zebra? Horse is a very Thano and not original answer, and zebra is like more original answer. So in creative cartoons, where you have an opportunity to give your answer right away, if you don't pause yourself, if you don't slow down, you fail being creative. Where in stories, like the test is built the way that it always takes time. So you always have time to think more about the task you have in front of you. So if I sum up for the creative person, it's important not to pick the first available, most popular answer which comes to mind, but rather slow down, think more and search for more creative answer. Is that correct? Or people who are able to slow down, they would be more creative than people who would like rush and just pick the first available idea which comes to their mind and they would be considered less creative. The second is more accurate. I would Mm -hmm. argue that there is something called creative person because we believe that every person is creative and every person is actually involved in creative behavior every day because your thinking itself is creative. If If you're not creative in your thinking that you actually just use your memory, and not your thinking. So every everybody is creative. It's uh, just a matter of a single creative act. If you slow down and don't take the answer that's that comes to mind first, and instead maybe think about it, or maybe just you know open your mind to the unconscious parts uh, of yourself, or you know. God or uh, inspiration for psychology, it's kind of all the same thing. Uh, If you give yourself a minute to find a different answer, it's going to be more creative and you're going to be more successful in this creative task. Wow, which would almost prove that creativity can be trained in a way, right? So it's like you don't have to be born... Uh, genius, but rather you can train to become more creative by, for example, practicing mindfulness or like self-control or focus or slowing down techniques. Absolutely. Uh, I'll tell you more. There are a lot of studies that actually look into how genetic things like this are. And for example, we know for sure that intelligence is an ability to solve <laughs> IQ test, basically. Uh, intelligence is 50-50. It's 50% from your genes and 50% from your environment and your uprising. We know if, if we, for example, study separated twins 
who have the same genes but different upbringing. But creativity is way more depends on the environment. It's way less genetic. So if you are raised a certain way, but also if you, you know, raise yourself a certain way, you can absolutely become more creative. So optimistic. Yeah, absolutely. So there is no excuse for people who say like, oh, I'm not an artistic person. You are. <laughs> you can train yourself to be. Yes, because the thinking is there. You may struggle with not knowing how to hold a brush, but this is something you can easily uh, learn. And if you allow yourself to actually open your mind, be mindful, find a way in this flow then um, you can be a, you can be an artist because you are an artist. You are an artist of your life and of your thinking. Wow, that's amazing. Thank you, Lisa. I just want to wrap it up back to your chosen profession, which is artistic profession. Like photography mm -hmm. is a creative profession. So you dedicated uh, quite a lot of years to the research, right? Mm -hmm. And then you grow artistically too. So do you think that your research somehow helped you to grow artistically? Um, and how did your background in studying psychology and doing science and psychology uh, backed you up to become a um, photographer? Do you see the correlation there or it's a pure randomness? No, there is correlation. Uh, correlation is not always causation. As I taught my students when I actually, oh my God, had students took exams <laughs> back to crazy lifestyle. Did I ever taught a class being still drunk from last night? I'll never gonna tell you. <laughs> but psychology taught me a lot of things. First, even though I'm not trained to be a, a therapist, I still was taught all of the techniques of like active listening and things like that, that helped me make people feel safe and make people feel like they can open for me, which really helps with taking portraits because I take pictures of people. And another thing is general psychology, very loves studying like little parts, little pricks uh, every person is built from. So it taught me a lot about visual perception and how to trick my viewer or guide my viewer to perceive my images the way I want them to perceive them. Because image, even though it's just one, one thing, it still tells a story because your eye is traveling through it and it takes time. So I think psychology really helped me knowing how to, how to build an image to tell a story. What would you recommend to some of our listeners who might be thinking of what do I do to actually start training myself to become more creative or opening up my mind to become more creative? What would be the first steps? What would you recommend for people who maybe right now are super stuck in their heads and they want to pursue more creative uh, pathways in their lives? First, you people need to subscribe to Jana's email newsletter. Oh, <laughs> it very helps. Thank you, Lisa. But I really believe, and I established it from my own research, that giving yourself some space to think, 
to experience things, uh, to look at other people's work is very important. It's number one. And number two is just take the first step because it takes really not a lot of energy to enter the flow state. I keep saying the flow state. Do I need to explain what the flow state is? Let's maybe clarify quickly if it's possible and maybe someone doesn't know. The flow state is a concept developed by a guy with the most amazing name you ever hear. Uh, his name is Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. I didn't know that. Uh, I think he's like Czech or something. His like first name and last name are the same. He's amazing. And it's when you solving a task, probably all of you experienced it in your life. Sometimes you enter the state of mind where you don't really feel the time passing by or you, you completely dissolve in your task. And this is called a flow state. And once you enter it, you can solve like any, any problem, any creative problem. You can write a masterpiece. You can create an opera. And the, the hardest part is to make the first step and to enter it. But once you're there, nothing can stop you. So learn how to both slow down, but also go beyond yourself. And this would be my advice. Wow. Thank you so much. Is there anything maybe on the surface which you would like to share or also how people could find you if they want to connect with you? Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Jane, for listening. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram. It's Lisa Pavlova. There is a lot of cool things I post there, including my work with Broadway actors, shooting someone from Harry Potter and the Cursed Child every year. Uh, it's, it kind of started as a joke, but now it's a tradition. Also, you can check there my big personal project called Day to Our America. I spent quarantine going out to uh, Black Lives Matter protests, uh, taking portraits of the protester. It, it was a very important project for me. Yeah, follow me on Instagram and um, you'll hear everything about my life there. And see my dog. Yeah, especially Lisa's dog. And don't miss her stories. She's so good at it. Lisa, your stories are precious. Thank you. My dog just came to the... Okay, I need to walk Rika. Yeah, okay. And I need to also stretch my legs, uh, which been mm -hmm. in the closet <laughs> for quite a while. And you too. Yeah, we've been in yeah. the closet for quite a while. <laughs> and there is nothing gay about it. Yep. Bye. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy listening to the Slowing Down podcast and want to receive updates from me, your host, consider subscribing to my newsletter on my website janaslow.com, J-A-N-N-A-S-L-O-W.com. The music is composed by Remy Silly, aka Klatu. Find his tunes on soundcloud.com slash Klatu, Apple Music or Spotify. Thanks everyone and until the next time.